Play a little Can't Touch This MC Hammer Time. We're kicking off an all-new series. We're calling it Hammer Time. And uh, it's more than just an excuse to play MC Hammer in church. There is an explanation to the madness, a method to the madness that goes on here at Reason Church. But uh, I want to start off just saying this. I just want to welcome you. I just want to say that we're so glad that you're here, so glad that you joined us, that you came here on this fine Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, church isn't meant to just simply just be this anonymous thing where you come, you sing songs, you hear a guy speak, but it's supposed to be a family. You know, I read uh, some studies by some sociologists saying that in this day and age that we're living in, um, what has really evaporated more than anything, what's really eroded uh, based on the technology, based on all the advances that are happening within our civilization, what's really, really eroded is, is a sense of community, a sense of, of knowing people who have your back, knowing people who are with you to kind of carry your burdens with you. There are so many people, uh, one out of three people say that loneliness is something they deal with on a habitual, constant basis. And so that's part of the reason why we started this church. We say it's a place to believe, and it's a place to belong. And so uh, before we jump on into the message, start talking about Hammer Time, uh, you're going to hear more about it later from my buddy Chris, but I also just wanted to invite you out to be a part of that kind of community. It's one of the advantages of being a new church. We're only a few months old as a church. And I just want to invite you out to team night. It's going to be pretty fun, man. We're going to be uh, blowing it up at G6 Air Park. All right, this guy hooked us up. And we got the whole trampoline park rented out for free, all right? So it's just going to be a fun time. I know it's kind of crazy. Don't act like you're too cool. You know, don't act like, I'm not going to go jump one of my some little kid. It's like, come do a backflip. It'll be fantastic. It'll be so good. Meet some people. There'll be free food. Uh, be a part of a community. That's what we're inviting you into. It's this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Uh, maybe you'll join the team. Maybe you'll be a part of making this church possible, a part of other people meeting Jesus right here in this crazy ballroom bar that we're doing church in on 722 East Burnside Street. Man, I love what we're doing, and I love that you joined us this morning. But hammer time, what's the deal with that? What's this all about? Well, there's a verse that I really like in the book of Jeremiah that says, is my word, we'll put it up on the screen for you, in fact, says, is my word not a fire, says the Lord? Is it not a hammer that breaks rocks to pieces. Now, there's a lot of metaphors within the Bible about the Bible. There's a lot of different metaphors. There's, there's uh, so many different ones that come our way. One of the most famous ones is that the Bible says that it's a sword that divides down to our motives. It says that it's a seed that brings forth fruit, that it's a rock that we can build our lives upon, that it's medicine that heals our wounds, that it's a lamp that shows us our way, that it's gold and a treasure that we can desire. But you know the most common metaphor that's in the Bible, about the Bible, is food. Food is the most common metaphor. It's, it's used more commonly than any other thing. And living here in Portland, Oregon, I can say to you honestly, we know a thing or two about food, don't we? We know what's going on in the food scene. We like some food. We know that food isn't just for nourishment. Oh, no, 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 no. Food is for enjoyment. Food is something a little yum-yum in my tum-tum. You know what I'm talking about? And that's actually the most common metaphor for the Bible, in the Bible, that it's bread, that it's milk, that it's meat, that it's honey, 
that it's water. I could have just called this series Yummy Time. That's what I should have called it. It's yummy time. Because God's word is supposed to nourish us. It's supposed to supply us that we'd grow. But you know what? Honestly, I called it Hammer Time, and I chose that metaphor, not just because the MC Hammer song, although I do like that. But I like the metaphor of a hammer because sometimes God's word does break us down. And that can be a painful process. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, it's offensive. Sometimes you read the Bible and it, and it, and it challenges you and it convicts you. And you kind of realize like, man, I'm going this way with my life. But you know what? This does feel like a little bit like I'm getting broken down like a hammer. But here's the thing. Hammers aren't just used to break down, are they? Hammers are used to build up. And God's ultimate purpose in his word isn't to beat you down. It's to build you back up better than before. So that's why we called this series Hammer Time. And it's a series all about the Bible. Now, the Bible, even in 2016, even in our crazy, uh, you know, self-driving cars, uh, uh, you know, fingerprint iPhones and, and, and voice control and all this technology that's available to us. Uh, the Bible still certainly has a place in the pop culture, doesn't it? I don't know if you've noticed how many movies are coming out about the Bible. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, Christian Bale came out in a movie playing Moses. We got Russell Crowe playing Noah. And there's weird Transformer rock guys in that for some reason. We got Joseph Fiennes uh, in the movie Risen. There's a, a movie about Paul the Apostle that's slated to be made with Hugh Jackman playing Paul the Apostle. Kind of interesting. I don't know. We'll see what that's like. And then my personal favorite is that Will Smith, you heard it here first, Will Smith is coming out with a movie about Cain and Abel. That's right. The Fresh Prince is finally going to crack Carlton's head. That's what's going down. You know, it's, it's going to be ridiculous. But it makes sense that Hollywood would make a movie. They love making movies based on best-selling books, and the Bible is the best-selling book ever written. There's been over 5 billion copies of the Bible sold. In fact, it was the first book ever sold. It was the first book that, if you go back in your time in history class, that Gutenberg ever printed on his movable type printing press, the Bible. It was the first book that was ever published in that form. It's been translated in over 2,223 languages, and uh, it actually is an app now, okay? Uh, you got your phone on you, you got your phone on you, anybody? You can download the Bible as an app, and it's one of the most downloaded apps that's ever been created. The Bible app, made by Uversion, has uh, been downloaded over 200 million times. You know, Snapchat's only been downloaded 60 million all right, Snapchat can't even touch the Bible. It's ridiculous. But you may be here this morning, and we like to say that this is a church where you don't have to be a person of faith. You may not even believe in the Bible, but you're welcome here. You're wanted here. This is a place of grace. You don't have to be a person who grew up in church your whole life to come to this church. We love that you're here. But you may be here thinking like, okay, cool. My family brought me, you know, it's Memorial Day. I don't even really want to come to church on Memorial Day, but I came to church. Here I am. Cool, man, you're into the Bible. You're into this church thing. I'm into, like, LARPing. I, I just like to go to the park and whack people with, like, fake swords and pretend I live in medieval times. You're into the Bible. I'm into LARPing. That's great. You know, that, that may be how a lot of Portlanders would look at what we're doing. On a more serious note, you've probably heard some of the, the doubts and the questions people have about the Bible. 
You know, people will often say, it's a book just written by man. People will say, it's been translated too many times. People will say that it's culturally regressive. Or, even worse, some would say that the Bible was just a book written by the Roman Catholic Church to control people, to get people under their thumb. These are the things that I've heard over and over again as I've spoken with people. But you know what's interesting is that there was a survey by Barna Group that said only 9% of non-believers have ever read the Bible. Okay, only 9% of non-believers have never read the Bible. And so you may have some doubts about the Bible. Maybe you don't even believe it. Maybe you have friends who don't believe it whatsoever. But, you know, I would say, don't be like my two-year-old son who will have food placed in front of him, having never tasted it, never have it come across his palate, and he'll go, I don't like that. And I'll be like, dude, you've never tasted that in your life. I've been with you every day. I was with you before you were born. You were inside of a tummy. You've never even tasted that food. You don't know. He's like, I don't like that. It's like, no, man, you, you, you just got to try it. You, gotta, you don't even never tasted it. You can't say what, you can't make judgments about it. You can't say anything about its culinary, you know, expertise. You just got to give this lasagna a shot, you know? And what my wife will do, my wife will be kind of condescending with him. She'll go, just have a try me bite. Why don't you just take a little try me bite of this? You know what we're doing in this six week series, whether you believe the Bible, whether you don't, whether you come to church often, whether you don't, whether you have a friend who's maybe not even here, you wish they were here to hear this series, you can invite them. What we're doing in this six part series, we're giving people a try me bite. A little try me bite. Because you know what? You may taste it. You may start to like it. You may start to love it. You may start to feel completely different about it. You may just taste and see that the Lord is good. So I would invite you, commit to being here all six weeks. I'd invite you to commit to being here all six weeks, all right? Maybe something will come up. Maybe you'll be like, I don't know. Maybe I'll be tired one week. Well, you can always catch it online. But I'd invite you, sink your roots in. Be here for all six weeks of this series. You probably know somebody in this city who has some of the doubts that we're going to be talking about. I'd invite you to bring them to this series. Be here for all six weeks of it. Can I get an agreement? Can you guys agree with me? Can you, can you nod your head? All right. So the ultimate claim of the Bible is this. It's that God is a communicator. That God doesn't have a speech impediment. That God doesn't have a stutter that God is not mute, that God is the initiator, that he is proactive, not passive, and that God has, in fact, spoken. You know, most people view God as intangible, as afar off, as indifferent, as unknowable, really, you can't understand him. They would say that God is transcendent. But the claim of the Bible is that God isn't just transcendent, he's condescendent. The other way you could put that is this. The Bible says that it's not a book about us going to God, but it's a book about how God came to us. That God came to us. That he's willing to get down on our level. And that's what makes it unique from every other religious text in the world. That it's not a book about how to get to God. It's a book about how God came to us.
Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come and we approach your word, as we approach this subject that is really something that a lot of people have maybe kind of written off, something maybe they've never even given it much thought, they've never pondered it. Lord, as it's been forced to the forefront of our attention, as we're a new church in this city that believes the Bible, Lord, we feel a need to explain that, to, to kind of put the cookies on the bottom shelf, make it accessible for anyone, why we trust this book, why we love it. We know that we can't understand it unless your spirit enlightens us, unless you give us eyes to see, Lord. So we pray that you would speak to us now in this moment. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt ill-equipped to face life? Have you ever been in one of those moments, I know I have, where you just feel like life is too much for you? Like you're just like, I don't even know what to do in this situation. You know, it's easy for us to sometimes be all tough and ready to rumble, feel like we got it all together. But there are those moments in everyone's life, whether it's a romance, whether it's in your career, whether it's temptations or it's trials, whether it's just this overwhelming anxiety that comes over you. Maybe it's even death. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. You just feel ill-equipped to deal with it. Maybe it's the idea of your own death, which a lot of us don't even take time to consider. The struggle is real. Well, this message today is really saying that God wants you to be locked and stocked. And really, that's why we started this church, because we believe that the Bible will equip you to face life both here on this world and in the afterlife. That the Bible is everything you need to be equipped to face life and to face eternal life. What comes beyond the grave? What's after this world? The text we're going to be looking at today from the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll put it on the screen for you. Hopefully you can look, look along on your uh, you know, iPhone, your smartphone. You can download the Bible right there. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can everybody say with me, locked and stocked? Say it, locked and stocked. That you'd be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm so convinced that the Bible is able to equip you. That's why I started a church where if you come here week after week, we taught through the entire book of Colossians. We teach through the whole Bible. We're teaching book by book. But our first premise this morning is that it's God-breathed and it will build you up. It's God-breathed and it will build you up. That word scripture in the Greek is the word graphiae. And it, in Italian, becomes, uh, Italian it becomes graffio, but then wonder what we get from there. We also get the word graffiti from that. How good is that? It's like God's been tagging up the town. Like God's just straight up gangster, man. He's been tagging the place up. No, not really. That's not what it is. It really has more to do with just writings, that these writings are breathed by God. But do you know that the Bible is also a book written by man? A lot of people would say that. They'd say, yeah, the Bible's a book written by man. You know what? It's a book written by man, but it's not a book written only by man. 
It's not just written by man. The, the, the doctrine of bibliology, the doctrine of the scripture, has never maintained that it was just like God just made this book, ooh, like descend from the sky, and it just came down one day, and somebody found it. They're like, this is amazing. It was never, that's never been the position of the church. That's never been the position of, of really anybody. There's dual authorship. And it's not so much that, uh, that the biblical authors were like transcriptionists. My wife actually got certified in medical transcription, all right? She's got this clickety-clack, 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 clickety-clack. Like, she's got lightning-fast fingers. She could put anybody. She's got the fastest fingers in the Northwest. Uh, she's got a, what is that, Guam? Like, you know, how many words per minute? She's amazing at it. And some people think that the authors were just like that, as if God just spoke, and then they just kind of, like, wrote down exactly what he said, word by word, but it was actually something far more supernatural, something uh, uh, far more mysterious, something far more tremendous. It's not so much that it was dictation. It was more like God was a musician. It was more like God was a musician. What do I mean? Well, it's sort of like every person who authored the New Testament was like a musical instrument, and they have different tone, and they have different sound, and they have different vocabulary, and they have different culture, but it's all the same composer. You know, maybe uh, Paul was like a flute, you know, you know, and then and then uh, John was like a tambourine or something or a guitar. Maybe I don't know. Maybe Isaiah or Ezekiel was like a synthesizer. It was gangster. It was just crazy coming at you with those freaky visions and stuff. But what the book that is the Bible is, is it's 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents. It was written by over 1500 years But what's so unique and tremendous about it is that all of these people, with all of their different cultures, with all of their different vocabularies, with all of their different backgrounds, they all have united views on some of the most complicated subjects facing the human race. I mean, that's what's really unique about it. That's what's really distinct about it. I mean, if you think about somebody living thousands of years ago from us, their views of things were so different. But, but the biblical authorship, it, it, it's, it's a united worldview on a, a very complex subjects, but it's completely unified in its message. And namely, that's how to be made right with God. Now, people don't like the idea of an infallible Bible because they say, Now, how could a fallible person write an infallible book? And it's it's kind of a silly thing, and sometimes C.S. Lewis was a little tongue-in-cheek. C.S. Lewis was this author from England. He was an atheist most of his life, became a Christian, and became one of the most prolific Christian writers. But he said this, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can draw a straight line with... With a crooked stick. And beyond that, you and I, even though we're imperfect people, we can make perfectly accurate statements. Like it's completely accurate, a hundred percent accurate. Even though I'm an, even though I'm a fallible person, I can make an infallible statement to say, Barack Obama is the president of the United States. It's like that is perfectly accurate. And these biblical authors, they made perfectly accurate statements, but more than that, God was superintending it so that it was only perfectly accurate. Statements. This is the claim of Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening 
the eyes. Some people get bothered by things that they perceive to be errors in the Bible. They get, you know, they get bothered that there's like a, a just common language, that there's a different vocabulary, that there maybe is like metaphor, or there's hyperbole, or there's colloquialisms. But I really like what John Frame says. He, he says this, if you came up to me and asked me, hey man, like, uh, how old are you? I was like, oh yeah, I'm 26 years, two months, 11, uh, 11 days, three hours, and 38 minutes old. Like, that's how old I am. You would be like, TMI. I don't need that, right? TMI. You just want me to say I'm 26. Does that mean I committed an error if I just tell you I'm 26? No, because you're not expecting precision. You're just expecting kind of a rough estimate. And there's places in the Bible where it's not like this precise technical language like neuroscientists would write the way a technical medical book would be written. It's not always written that way because if the Bible were written in those technical language, then only neuroscientists could read it. That only technical people could read it. That only you know, people who are, who are high erudite people could read it. But the Bible's written in common language. Why? Because God wants common people to understand it. He wants common people to be able to relate with it. Common people to be able to understand it. John Frame put it like this. He said, It's helpful to define inerrancy more precisely by saying that inerrant language makes good on its claims. When we say the Bible is inerrant, we mean that the Bible makes good on its claims, not the claims that are made by thoughtless readers. So, our case is we believe that the Bible's inspired, we believe that it's inerrant, and we believe that it's sufficient. And what are the claims? Well, the claims are that it can tell us about our origin, that it can tell us about the meaning of life, that it can tell us about our morality, and it can tell us about our destiny. So that's the claim. But what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this message and also next week is that's the big claim. That's a really, 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 really big claim. But what we're going to see is can it bring the game? Can it bring the game? Can it make good on that claim? Because people would say it's just a book written by man. People would say that it's been translated too many times, that it's just myths and fairy tales, that it was just invented to control people, to demean people, to keep people oppressed. That's what people would say. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Next thought is this. When God's word is suppressed, people are oppressed. When God's word is suppressed, people are oppressed. I feel like the most common thing I've heard from people is exactly that, that the Bible was just invented as a way to kind of subjugate people, to keep people down, to firm up and sure up the Roman Catholic Church's power back in those medieval times when all those uneducated believed all those silly, fallacious, crazy things. People talk about things like the Inquisition, They talk about things like indulgences. They talk about how the papacy would control the fates of different kingdoms. I got one problem with that. Here's my problem with all of this. My problem with it is that you'd think that if it was a book invented to control people, they would have actually wanted people to read it. They would have actually wanted people to read it. But what do we see? If you know anything about history, you know the exact opposite. Did you know that from 600 AD, it was against the law for anyone who wasn't a part of the clergy to read the Bible? 
that is really weird. That's, that's really strange. Yeah, from 600 A.D. onward, as the church grew corrupt and as they drifted away from God's word, only highly educated people could read it. It was in the Latin translation. Pope Innocent actually made an edict. Pope Innocent III, he made an edict that if you tried to translate the Bible into a language people could understand, because people don't speak Latin anymore, that you would be burned along with your translation. That if you tried to make the Bible accessible, you'd be burned along with your translation. You see, I want you to hear me on this more than anything else. I want you to, if, if, you, if you hear nothing else from this point, I want you to hear this point. When tyrants, teachers, parents, pastors, anybody, could be somebody you know personally, could be just some historical figure thousands of, you know, a thousand years ago in, in, in medieval times and ancient times, when people use the Bible to abuse those underneath them, It's not because they're listening too closely. It's because they're not listening closely enough. Every Christian revival down through the centuries has been followed by a revival in human rights. When the word of God is suppressed, people get oppressed. But when the word of God is unleashed, oppressed people are released. People get let go. And that's why people have, have always been released from their burdens. There's been, as, as, the, as the Bible got translated by William Tyndale, and as it got translated by Martin Luther, and as it got translated by John Wycliffe, we saw these tremendous revivals where people became less corrupt, they became less oppressive, they became less, less evil less hell-bent on doing these things. We've always seen these tremendous revivals in human rights. Check out this. It's from Psalm chapter 82, verse 2 through 4. It says, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and maintain and, uh, the, the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. See, this is a constant theme in the Bible. It's not, it's not so much that the Bible is a tool to manipulate people. When you really know the Bible, when you really listen to the message of the Bible, you see that the grace of God frees people from the manipulation of man. It frees people from the manipulation of man. So, when God's word is suppressed, people are oppressed. But when God's word is unleashed, oppressed people get released. Our next thought is that you can't fudge these numbers. You can't fudge these numbers. And I realize this is a little bit technical, and maybe you feel like, oh my God, I didn't know I was going to a college class on Sunday morning. Like, this is way over my head. Like, I'm, I'm drowning here. This is too much, especially right before summer break. I thought all of this was over. But it's important, because if we're just going to come here and play church, and this Bible isn't real, and it, and it can't change our lives, and it, it's, just, it's just a book of myths and metaphors, and it makes people feel good, then there's no point in us going on. I mean, might as well just close the doors, quit renting out the ballroom, tear everything down. But if it really is a historical document, if it really is God speaking, then we ought to know it, and we ought to be able to, to talk with people in our lives who have these sorts of questions about it. So the next claim is that... Uh, people oftentimes make is they'll say, you know, it's been tampered with. 
The Bible's been tampered with over time. It's been changed. You can't really believe the manuscripts people have tampered with. They've kind of inserted their own opinion. They've swapped things around. They've changed people around. Anybody ever heard of the book, The Da Vinci Code? You just raise your hand up. You ever heard of The Da Vinci Code? You know, uh, yeah, and you probably saw the film, and it's kind of like Tom Hanks wandering around with this crazy wild look in his eye, and he's afraid of everything. Somebody's out to get him, and there's that creepy albino guy who likes to whip himself, and it's, it's, all, it's all very disturbing, you know? And, and they make some pretty audacious claims in that book, in that movie. It's very much crept into our mainstream culture, into a lot of people's thinking. But they would say that Constantine was this corrupt emperor and that he, along with the church leaders, they just kind of tainted the message of the Bible. They hid these gospels. They hid these manuscripts. That You can't really trust anything that it says. But I would tell you that the numbers for the manuscripts in the Bible, that the, the, the numbers for uh, the epistemology that you verify old documents, the way that it's, it, it, it's, it's proven to us is so tremendous. The numbers are so out of this world, so just, just, just completely beyond it, there's no way that they could have tampered with it. You see, Constantine wasn't even baptized until 12 years after the Nicene Council. So that's what that book says, that's what that movie says, that the Nicene Council happened, and they kind of decided that Jesus was going to be divine, and they tucked away all these other manuscripts about Mary Magdalene, they tucked away all these other things. But you know that there are over 32,000 quotations directly from the New Testament, saying that it's the, ver- that it's the inspired word of God, that it's uh, the actual word of God. There's over 32,000 of those from the early church fathers before the Nicene Council ever even happened. Guys like Clement of Rome, who was a direct friend of Paul the Apostle, Guys like Polycarp, who is a direct friend of John the Apostle. We have Ignatius, we have Justin Martyr, we have Arrhenius, we have Tertullian, we have uh, Hippolytus, we have Origen. Irenaeus in 175 said that there were only four Gospels and that those were people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And all of these guys lived before the Edict of Milan. What does that mean? It means that they were running for their lives under persecution from the Roman Empire. These guys weren't in power. They were completely out of power. They had no power. They had no ability to, con- to control things. They weren't trying to manipulate people. They simply loved Jesus. Now, Philippians, which virtually all scholars, I mean, maybe in the, in the college campus over here at PSU, uh, uh, you know, from, from, from the most erudite scholars who, who study these things constantly, virtually Everybody agrees that Philippians, that's a book in the Bible, Philippians was written within 15 years of Christ actually walking the earth. And what's interesting is that in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about the deity of Christ. It says that Christ was divine. And so the idea that Constantine declared that Jesus was divine and they tucked away all these things saying that Jesus was was, um, merely a man, that really has no basis within history and, uh, and you shouldn't be, you know, disturbed or, or, or afraid of, of those um, claims that people sometimes make. Okay, another big claim that people make is they say that the Bible's been translated too many times. 
people often say, you know, the Bible's been translated too many times. You can't even know what its real meaning means. You don't even know what the author's really intended. It's been translated way too many times. Well, here's the thing. The New Testament was written in Greek. We have people who can read Greek. We have people who've read the entire Bible in Greek, who who can go back to these documents, can read them, who commit their whole lives to translating them. And we have so many manuscripts from the New Testament. We have so many manuscripts that we're able to identify errors within any manuscript and be able to weed them out, sort through them. And, And basically what it comes down to is this. If we have these many manuscripts, 5,805 Greek New Testament manuscripts, if we have 25,000 early New Testament manuscripts, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us you can't tamper with all of them. Okay, let's say somebody tampered with it. Let's say somebody was trying to uh, insert their own views into the Bible. They were trying to mess with it and, and play around with it. You can't tamper with all of those manuscripts. You can't get to it. And more than that, Every other ancient writing from antiquity, you know, maybe you've heard of Homer, not Homer Simpson, but Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you've probably heard of Julius Caesar, you've probably heard of Plato. The manuscript evidence for their writings pales in comparison to the manuscripts of the New Testament. And this doesn't prove that the Bible is divine, but what it does prove is that it's a historically reliable document that it hasn't been tampered with, that it hasn't been fudged, that there wasn't some guy just like writing his own views to try to control people and manipulate people, but that the claims that it makes, that these were actually what the New Testament authors write. Now, that doesn't prove that miracles happen. That doesn't prove that supernatural things happen. We're going to be talking about that more next week. But what it does prove is that it's a historically reliable text. Now, the next thing is that legends don't leave litter. Legends don't leave litter. When I was a little kid, I had this really, really, really big problem with littering. Like my parents, you know, buy me a Capri Sun or something. I'd be like, I'd be drinking my Capri Sun back in my car seat, like enjoying it, wheezing down the juice. And then I'd roll down my window and I'd throw it out the window. And my mom would notice me do that. I don't know if she just was, like, lying to me or, if it, or maybe I've, like, blended this with delusions from, like, watching CSI later on in life. But, I, but I, when I got older, I started getting afraid, like, they're going to fingerprint that. They're going to fingerprint that Capri Sun. They're going to come find me. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to get busted for it. You know, th- th- those were the delusions of, of my childhood. I recycle now, okay? I'm, I'm, tr- I'm working on it. I'm trying to help the environment more. <laughs> Well, obviously, you can't fingerprint a piece of trash. They're not going to go to the... Oh, you could, but they're not going to go to the trouble of it. But here's the thing. Ancient people did leave litter. They did leave litter, and it's called archaeology. And through archaeology, you can kind of confirm whether somebody actually lived or actually, you know, was just a myth. There's a lot of people... I was on my Instagram feed just a little while ago, and and, uh, I followed this really dope account... And uh, it, it was called Abandoned Places. And it's this amazing account. It has like h- hundreds of thousands of followers, so many people following this account. And the guy posted a Bible verse. And it was really interesting to watch people immediately get on his Instagram posts, start being like, that's just a book of fairy tales. None of those things ever happened. None of those people ever lived. Did you know that archaeology has never once overturned a biblical person, that no single discovery of archaeology has ever overturned a single 
uh, figure from history. In fact, Nelson Gluick, who wasn't even a Christian, but he, spe- he devoted his life to studying in the Holy, Holy Land, he said this, As a matter of fact, it can clearly be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever overturned a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological finds have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements found in the Bible. There's been 25,000 archaeological discoveries that have matched up with Scripture, okay? 25,000 archaeological locations from the Bible. The Bible isn't, isn't like, you know, reading Aesop's fables. It's not like reading the Brothers Grimm. It's not like reading, like, Hogwarts and Harry Potter. It's, it's, it's not like reading uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey or these, or these ancient tales of, of, of crazy places. These are real cities. These are real people who actually lived. And there's been 30 people confirmed from the New Testament, Okay. So there's been 30 people in the New Testament confirmed via archaeology. There's been 60 people confirmed from the Old Testament. Now, certain parts of the Bible came under intense scrutiny uh, during the 19th century. Like, people started really doubting miracles, and they started thinking, oh, that's all all a load. And so they started coming at the Bible with this tremendous amount of scrutiny and, and kind of just throwing out everything and saying, you know what, I bet you John, for instance... That was just a book written. It wasn't even written in Israel. It was probably written somewhere else in Greece, the Gospel of John. It was just a myth cobbled together. But you know what? Since then, the archaeologists have always come and sent the critics, you know, running to the hills. Because there's been 60 historical details verified from John. There's been 80 historical details verified from the book of Acts. Um, and this is, here's an interesting one that I'll actually show you. So people used to say that Pontius Pilate never lived. The critics would be like, you know, Pontius Pilate, there's nothing in history that records that he was ever a real person. This whole idea of him being the one who crucified Jesus, that's ridiculous. And they said that over and over and over again until this Pontius Pilate stone was discovered at Caesarea by the sea. BT dubs, I've been to Caesarea BT dubs, I've been to Israel, I've seen this inscription, actually it's a, it's, a, it's a model of it that they have on display, I've seen it with my own two eyes, and when they discovered this pilot inscription at Caesarea by the sea, all the liberal critics who'd been criticizing the Bible saying Pilate never lived were like, oh, dang, <laughs> over and over again this has happened. Uh, another instance is David. People said that, oh, David never lived. David, just this mythological figure. And, and they said that for years and years and years that he didn't exhibit this kind of influence until, until just 10 years ago, they discovered this inscription here, you know, just not long ago whatsoever. They discovered an inscription of the house of David, and they were able to verify that David lived. Um, I can't go on and explain every single little thing that's been verified. I'll show you one last one. It's kind of interesting. It's from the Old Testament. They discovered King Hezekiah's signet ring, and uh, they were able to verify that King Hezekiah really was a king, that he really had a monarchy. Uh, Obviously, I'm not an archaeologist. I haven't committed my whole life to this study. I can't tell you every single detail, but I can tell you that, that, that over and over and over and over and over again, the liberal critics who've attacked the Bible have been turned back on their haunches, running for the hills, fleeing, when archaeology over and over again comes in, confirms the Bible. 
All right, that's all I got on this topic for today. I know it's, I know it's a lot to throw at you on a Sunday morning. It's kind of heavier, like I just want to go to brunch. I don't want to hear this anymore. It's way over my head, like, oh, this is so boring. Maybe you feel that way. But I just want you to know that we're not gathering around here just because uh, uh, we have blind faith. We believe in a reasonable faith. That's why we call this place Reason Church. And you have friends who are doubters. You have friends who are maybe skeptics. You have people who have difficulties with the Bible. But you know what? Ultimately, being by the book means living a life of love. Ultimately, God's goal for us in living according to the scripture is that we would be equipped for life that we'd be equipped for our relationships, that we'd be equipped to love different people in the city, that we'd be equipped to, uh, to, to face life, that we would be locked and stocked to face the kinds of challenges that are coming up against us. And I started this church because I believe that the Bible has enough for us today, that it is enough for what you're going through, enough for what you're facing. So we're going to have the band come back on stage. We're going to shut this thing down. I'm going to close this service off, get you out on your way. But uh, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we can trust the Bible, that we don't have to be overwhelmed, we don't have to be intimidated, we don't have to be uh, uh, feel like we're just living out this blind faith, but there is historical evidence that shows that this isn't just a book written by man, this isn't just a, a tale of nice stories, but there's, there's evidence behind it, Lord. I pray that people would leave here with confidence, and, and maybe that if somebody is still a skeptic, that they're still a doubter, that they, they feel unpersuaded about what I've said today, Lord, that they would know that, that we're people here who will stick it with them with their doubts, that even if they have questions, even if they're not persuaded, even if they're not convinced, that we're people who care about them, that we're willing to be with them for the long haul, that we're not going to kick them to the curb just because they have questions, we're not going to kick them to the curb just because they have doubts, and that ultimately, Lord, we would know that you're, you're a God who pursues us. You're a God who comes after us, that you're a God who loves us, that you, you chase us down, and that if somebody's running from you, you're not going to stop chasing them. That if somebody's having a difficult time, Lord, you're not going to stop pursuing them. We pray that we'd be people who are the same way. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand up? Stand to your feet.